Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 34. It's on page 546. People go praise. There we find God's word and a summary of God's word in the questions and answers 92, 93, and 94 and 95. First, 92, what is the law of the Lord? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then follow the 10 words of the covenant, the 10 commandments which you heard this morning and which you hear every Sunday morning. And then question and answer 93, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstitions and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know God, the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Now, this afternoon, we will deal only with a small part, and we will deal especially with the Ten Commandments and specifically the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And then after the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 103, the stances 3 and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that includes you, children, also young people, how do you make someone behave? How do you make someone do the right thing? That is something that parents struggle with all the time, especially when you are dealing with a difficult child, with a child that somehow just doesn't get it. Could be that the child has some kind of disability or some kind of disconnect that you don't understand or know about but you have great difficulty getting through to your child. He or she doesn't do what you want. How do you motivate such a child? How do you make him or her behave? And not such a child only, but all of your children. For let's face it, ultimately all of our children have difficulty in one way or the other keeping the laws the rules that are set. And that is because of their sinful nature. And so parents are constantly busy trying to think about how to make their child behave in a proper way. That's the way of life 
for us as parents. Sometimes we are totally at a loss as to how to change the behavior of our children. Their behavior can be totally overwhelming and humbling and frustrating. You wonder what you're doing wrong and how you can get through to them. Don't think that that's just a problem for the parents. It's a problem for the children as well. They wonder how they can make their parents change their behavior towards them. Why can't they be a little bit more understanding? Why don't they realize that their behavior is hurting me? That their behavior towards me needs to change? It's a problem we have in all of our relationship because we're all sinful people. And we want people to behave in the right way towards us because we are selfish creatures, of course. We want that from our husband, from our wife, from our friends, from our relatives. And it's frustrating when they don't behave in the way that we think they should. Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, young people, this afternoon I have some good news for you. For you see, that's the problem that the Lord God has with us as well. He is our Father, and we are His children, and He wants us to behave in the right way. He wants us to keep the rules, His Ten Commandments, His Ten Words of the Covenant. And the question for Him is, how do I make Him or her behave? He has an answer for us. It's a perfect answer, for he is perfect. He knows exactly what to do. With him, the problem with our bad behavior is not his parenting skills. The problem for him is us, me. We don't understand him. But he did clearly communicate to us how we should behave and how we should be motivated to behave. All we have to do is to understand what he is telling us, which he does in his word, in the Bible. And so that is what we have to listen to. If we carefully listen to that and put it into practice, then we will also know how to behave as God's children. And then we will also be able to teach our children and others to do the same thing. If we fully understand how God operates in the way that he motivates us to right behavior and how we implement that, then we will also be at peace with him and each other. Because that's most important, that we are at peace with God. That's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. It is about how the Lord motivates us to right behavior. And we have to examine in the first place what doesn't work, in the second place, what does work. To keep God's laws is very important. If you don't keep his laws, you will die. Therefore, what we're dealing here with this afternoon is very significant. It's a matter of life and death. And so, what do we do? And how do we do it? As you saw in the last two Lord's Days, we have to do it out of thankfulness. 
For that reason, this whole section dealing about the law of God is also under the heading of our thankfulness. In connection with Thanksgiving Day in the United States last Thursday, I read the following. If you're not thankful, you must be a turkey. Indeed, a turkey has no reason for thankfulness. Not a turkey. Not that a turkey has the actual ability to be thankful for anything. A turkey is a mindless animal. Nevertheless, because of thanksgiving, he is dead. He can't give thanks, and therefore he can't be and therefore he can be sacrificed. Only those creatures that can give thanks will live. If you're not thankful, even though you are a human being with a mind, you will be dead. And as we saw in the last two Lord's days, we have to keep God's laws out of thankfulness. You have to be thankful. How do you become thankful? How do you teach your children to be thankful? How do you teach your child to serve you out of thankfulness? Do you do that by telling him, you should be thankful that you have me as your parent and that I make so many sacrifices for you. You have to be thankful that I set the rules for you. What do you think the child is going to do? Will that make him or her behave? I don't think so. Do you? That's not going to cut it, is it? That's not how you're going to make a child behave. And you see, God doesn't do that either. He doesn't tell you how to be thankful. He makes you thankful. And his whole creation is designed to make you thankful for him. Only those who are stubborn and who don't want to listen don't see that. They don't see the almighty creator of heaven and earth and that he is the one who put everything in place and that he is the one who gives power to everything. He gives power to the seed in the ground. He put everything into motion. He is the creator of life. Life cannot come out of inorganic matter. No matter what the scientists tell you, no one has ever shown that that can be possible. And therefore, we owe everything to him. And so for us, it shouldn't be so hard to be thankful, should it? All you have to do is open your eyes and open your ears. And so, although we must be, he doesn't tell us to be thankful in so many words. He first shows us how to be thankful. Telling you how to behave in a certain way doesn't work. It never works. At least it doesn't work if you first don't have the if you first don't have the inclination to want to. There are many ways in which we try to make others behave. One way we do that is by putting them to shame. However, shame is not a motivating factor to bring about right behavior. Shame comes about only as a result of consciousness of bad behavior. 
In other words, you feel shame only when you know that you have done something wrong. Usually, you have such feelings of shame only once you're found out. But you cannot shame anyone into good behavior. That's what a judge in the United States recently tried to do with a woman in Cleveland who was caught swerving into a sidewalk, illegally passing a school bus full of children. The judge made her stand on a street corner with a sign that read, only an idiot would drive around a school bus. No doubt the judge's motives are good. It was to shame not only that woman, but to shame everyone into better behavior. That's what happens to you when you break the law. You're going to be made a public spectacle. America has a long tradition of public humiliation, dating back to the stockades and pillories of the colonial area in those days. For example, they would lock your head and your forearms in a block of wood, and they would set you up in a public place with a sign which displayed the crime that you had committed. People would walk by and hurl all kinds of insults at you. It was designed to humiliate you into better behavior. That doesn't work. It doesn't work pedagogically. It doesn't work theologically. God does not do that either to make us behave in the right way. And it has also been scientifically proven that it doesn't work. No surprise. Recently, a scientific study was done which showed that the more shame you feel, the less likely your behavior is going to change. This was done in a study of alcoholics who went to AA. They found a way of measuring the amount of shame a person felt by studying their postures and gestures and by other physical indicators. And the studies showed that the more shameful the alcoholic felt, the less likely he would be in maintaining his sobriety. Shame makes you realize the problem that you have. That's why those people went to AA in the first place. But shame doesn't make you want to change. On the contrary, shame strips you of your dignity and makes you want to go into hiding. The Bible also speaks about shame. We sang about that a moment ago. Psalm 25, stanza 5. Lord, forgive my evil doing. Great though be my sin and shame. And stanza 10. Let me not be put to shame. We don't want shame. We don't want to be put to shame either. Children certainly don't. You somehow have to maintain their dignity. Shame does not bring you to right behavior. All shame does is to make you realize that you have a problem. And so it does have an important function. But what it then does is to make you to try to avoid that whatever causes the shame. In that sense, it has the same function as pain. Pain is a good thing, for pain alerts you to danger. 
and it makes you want to avoid it. It teaches you to stay away from whatever costs you the shame or the pain in the first place. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't teach you where to go. It doesn't teach you to go in the right way. There are other ways in which we try to change behavior. For example, we threaten. If you don't do this, that and that is going to happen to you. Oh, sure, it is true that wrong behavior has consequences. And we also need to be told about those consequences. But again, you cannot use that in order to motivate someone to right behavior. We also use manipulation or anger or the silent treatment or rejection. We use all kinds of methods so that others will come around to our way of thinking as to how a person should behave. Well, you may have some limited success with some of these methods, but you will never reach the goal that you will want to reach. People may change their behavior because they feel sorry for you or because they feel constrained to do it, but not because they want to, not because they love you. What then do you do? How do you alter behavioral patterns? How do you make someone keep the rules? How does God do that? Well, you start at the very beginning, just like God shows us with the Ten Commandments. Before the Lord God tells us how we must behave, before he begins to tell us the rules that you must follow and the commandments that we must keep, he first says, I am the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that beginning speaks volumes. It shows the tremendous pedagogical insight that God has, to has into his children. It shows his wisdom and his compassion and his understanding. It shows how he patiently deals with us as his children and especially how lovingly he deals with us. For you see, he begins by telling us about our relationship with him. I am the Lord. The word Lord is in capital letters. That means that he uses his covenant name here, Yahweh. It's not for nothing that he does that. And he makes sure that we notice. For he uses that name six times in Exodus 20. And in the rendition of the Ten Commandments of Deuteronomy 6, he uses, no less, he uses it no less than nine times. We're used to the word Lord, aren't we? And in the English language, it is quite a general term, but not in Hebrew. The Hebrew language has different words to make more careful distinctions. The word Yahweh is a very special name. It's the name, for example, that the Lord used with Abraham. It was Yahweh who told Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And it was Yahweh who told him that he would give him the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession to him and his descendants after him. And that the Lord, Yahweh, would be their God. 
And so when they heard these words, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, before they heard the words of the law, they are first of all reminded of who they are dealing with. And this is the Lord God, the God of their fathers. This is our covenant God. It's a wonderful introduction. Already in Egypt, Moses had introduced them to that name. Moses had told them about the Lord, Yahweh, and what he was going to do. And subsequently, he also showed that his words meant something. He doesn't just speak and command. No, he puts his words into action. And the people clearly experienced that. They saw the mighty works of his hands. They had experienced that in the way that Yahweh had defended them. But they saw the plagues that came down upon Egypt and the way that he led Israel out of the land of Egypt and drowned Pharaoh and all their hosts. The Lord had done mighty things. When Moses first approached the people about leaving the land of Egypt, he told them that it was in accordance with the will of the God of their fathers. But at that point, the people were far from ready to leave the land of Egypt. Although they were nothing more than slaves, they nevertheless did not lack for food and housing. Why should we go? We don't know what's going to happen to us beyond the borders of Egypt. And when Moses comes to Pharaoh in the name of the God of Israel, Pharaoh is far from convinced that he should let them go. He thinks to himself, who is that God that I should listen? I should listen to him. It may be that that God indeed does exist, but I don't really see any proof. And it is then that God stretches out his mighty arms and he strikes the arrogant Pharaoh and the heathen Egyptians. The Lord God shows that he is not just a God who exists on paper or in the imaginations of men. No, he is a God who acts. And you can see that all around you as well. You can see all the miracles of God. He is a God who acts. And the people were witnesses of these facts. Who then is the Lord? He says to them there at Sinai, I am the Lord. I am the one who has done these things for you. I love you that much. And therefore, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, young people, when he speaks to you, then you cannot just remain neutral. Then you cannot just ignore him. When that almighty and loving God speaks to you, then you have to listen to him. For he is the God who loves you, who takes care of you, who protects you, who means you no harm, who wants to save you. Listen to him. Pharaoh didn't listen. It was his downfall. And so that is how God motivates us to right behavior. He first acts. He shows us how loving he is in the way that he takes care of his children. Of course, that's still not enough, is it? It didn't take long for the people in the desert to start grumbling and complaining. 
and they sinned against God in many and numerous ways. They broke every single one of God's commandments. But whose fault was that? Was that God's fault? No, it wasn't. They did not think about whom they were dealing with. They were just thinking about themselves. The Lord God has done everything in order to motivate us to right behavior. And therefore, he introduces himself more than just as the Lord. He says to his covenant people, I am the Lord, your God. That is all the more reason that they should listen to him. They belong to him. Let us fully realize to whom he says this. He says that to the Israelites who have just escaped from the shameful treatment at the hands of the Egyptians. Ever since Moses came on the scene, their maltreatment had taken on severe proportions. They were daily beaten with a whip if they were not productive enough. And the Egyptians could do with them what they wanted. And they were totally at the mercy of that cruel people. And there remained in their existence very little dignity. And they had to work from sun up to sundown. And they could hardly make any decisions of their own. It was their lot to do as they were told. And now this mass of people, which had for all intents and purposes lost their own identity, their own dignity there in the land of Egypt, and they are now reminded of their true identity. And they are told that he is their God. I am your God. You are my children. Precious in my sight. Because he is their God. They are precious in his sight. And in this way, the Lord God gives them dignity and worth and reason for living. It is only because of the dignity that God gives us that we will be motivated to right behavior. The Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, who had just shown us almighty strength and power in the plagues which he had visited on the Egyptians, reveals himself to be on their side, to be their God. He is their father, and they are his children. And they can be proud of such a parent. If you want to motivate your children or your loved ones to right behavior, then you have to treat them with respect. Then you have to maintain them in their dignity. And then you have to give them positive identity. Shaming them doesn't work. Name calling doesn't work either. Yelling at them and being angry at them doesn't work at all. It works the other way around. The behavior of others towards us depends very much on our behavior towards them. It is because of God's conduct towards his people that we also have to conduct ourselves in a certain way. He conducts us in his love for us in spite of our sins.
God is patient and he's compassionate. He says, I am your God. In other words, I chose you. Think about that. That is really quite something. God chose Israel as his people. He didn't do that because they were such a good and pious people, did he? Not at all. From the very start, they resisted Moses and they even threatened him. They said to him in Exodus 5 verse 21, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And they also murmured against Moses and therefore also against God when they were at the Red Sea and they saw the Egyptians approaching. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Exodus 14, verse 11. And we can think of many more instances during their stay in the wilderness that they rebelled against the Lord and his servants. They would much rather have stayed in Egypt and remained part of that worldly, godless society. Nevertheless, it is to such people that the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. The sad reality is that we cannot change other people's behavior. God, of course, can do that with us. But the reality is that he doesn't. He puts you and me before a choice. He shows us who he is and how loving he is. He shows his love especially in the way that he gave his only son. He did everything possible so that we would go to him, so that we would have the motivation to go to him. He did not create us like a block of wood with strings attached or like a pre-programmed computer robot. He gave us hearts and minds and souls. He gives us understanding and he gives us the ability to serve and to observe. He gives us the ability to love and to hate. But you have to accept those gifts, those abilities, with a thankful heart in order to serve God with them. Think about what God has done. Think about the wonderful creation. Think about yourself, how you have been made part of that creation, and that's all God's doing. And he gives you and me a very lofty place in it. You're not just some mindless turkey. You're a dignified human being. And thank God that he gives you that dignity, that he gives you that worth. He doesn't want you to be a dead turkey. He gives all these things to you so that you may give glory to his name, so that you may be thankful. And that's how he motivates us to right behavior. And that's also how we ought to motivate one another to right behavior. Because we are all children of God through faith. And so that difficult child of yours is also a child of God. And so that brother or sister in the pew whom you tend to view with disdain because of the things that that person has done to you or because of the kind of person you think that he or she is.
is also a child of God. That person is a child of God and has been given God's name on his or her forehead. And that's how we ought to see each other. And that's what the office bearers have to do. That is what I have to do. That's what you have to do. And if you see these things in that way, then you will also want to do that. And then you will also want to have the right behavior. You will want to keep God's commandments. If you see what God has done, that you want to serve him out of love because of the love that he has shown to you. God says to you, because I am your father, you must keep my commandments. But that comes first. He first tells you who he is and who, is in, who he is in relation to you. He says, I am the God who has made all these things. And if there is anybody that knows what is good for you, it is I. And what is good for you is keeping the Ten Commandments to the best of your ability. And it is in this way that the relationship between us is maintained. And in this way you will also image, you will mirror who I am. Of course, we can't keep the commandments. We can't keep our relationship with God. But he has a remedy for that as well. He gave us his son. Paul asks, what is the purpose of the law? And then he says that the law is there to point us to Christ. And in verse 24 of chapter 3 of Galatians, he says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Other translations say that the law is our guardian or our schoolmaster, as the King James has it. Paul uses a word here which the first readers of this text were quite familiar with. It is the word pedagogue. A pedagogue was someone who was the guardian of children until they came to maturity and until they could look out for themselves. Now in this way, the law is our pedagogue. The law teaches us to know Christ. And it is especially the introduction to the law that does that. He is the Lord God who rescued us from slavery. Slavery in Egypt, oh yes. But much more than that, the law points us to Christ, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the law shows us God's love. And it is God's love that ought to motivate us to keep his commandments. His love has to come first. There is no other way. Amen.